I mean, mm-hmm. our system only works mm-hmm. if the rules are followed. And fortunately, we had a judge here that was going to force them or tried to force them, but they still didn't follow. Hello and welcome to See You in Court, the podcast that informs you about the Georgia civil justice system, what it means to you, and how it protects individual rights. This podcast is a collaboration between the Georgia Civil Justice Foundation and the Georgia Institute of Technology. Your hosts are Robin Frazier-Clark and Lester Tate, who are both past presidents of the State Bar of Georgia and currently serve on the board of directors of the Georgia Civil Justice Foundation. And now this episode of See You in Court. Good morning, friends and lovers of the law, and welcome to See You in Court. I am Robin Fraser-Clark, and with us here today, as usual, is our famous co-host, Lester Tate. Hey, Lester, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. I'm glad to know I'm famous and not infamous, though. I I think more people (laughs) think of me as being infamous, so... uh... Uh, One or the other, depends on who you ask. Doing all right today? Doing great, doing great, uh, and uh, looking looking forward to talking to our guests today. Same here. Um, We're excited to have Lance Cooper on as our guest today. Today, we're going to be talking about products liability law and specifically about a defect in the Chevy Cobalt car who, that was uncovered by our guest, who's a trial lawyer, not a police detective. And that is none other than Lance Cooper, trial lawyer extraordinaire, who is with us today. Let me tell you a little bit more about Lance. Lance Cooper is the founding partner of the Cooper Firm and represents clients in catastrophic injury and wrongful death cases. He specializes in products liability cases involving automobile design and manufacturing defects. Lance has been lead counsel for plaintiffs in a large number of jury trials, including trials against General Motors, Ford, Toyota, Kia, Chrysler, Honda, as well as other motor vehicle manufacturers and large corporations. His 2011 wrongful death case against General Motors, Melton versus GM, exposed the cover-up of faulty ignition switches resulting in millions of recalled vehicles, and we're going to talk a little bit more about that. Lance received his law degree from Emory University in 1989, my alma mater also, where he was a G. Joseph Toro Scholar and editor of the Harvard Journal of Law and Public Policy. He received his bachelor's degree in political science and economics from the University of California at Berkeley in 1985. Lance served as the 2002-2003 president of the Georgia Trial Lawyers Association and is a past president of the Cobb County Trial Lawyers Association. He is a member of the American Association of Justice and was honored to receive the Stephen J. Sharp Public Service Award in 2014. Lance was also a 2014 nominee for the Public Justice Trial Lawyer of the Year Award. In addition to his law practice, Lance is actively engaged in numerous community and charitable activities. He and his wife, Sonia, are the proud parents of five children, Rachel, Rebecca, Michelle, Asa, and Aaron. Lance, welcome to the show. Thank you, Robin. And just to add to the resume, it's now the proud parent of or proud grandparents to four grandchildren. Four grandchildren. Oh, my goodness, Lance. Hopefully many more. You cannot be that old. 
Yeah. Because I think we're about the same age. <laughs> Lance, our, our, our friend Roy Barnes once said that uh, grandkids are the gift God kills you for not killing your kids when they're teenagers. So uh, I see you've come into your full reward here. That's right. And just, just in, I'm interested, what do your grandchildren call you? What's your name? Papa Lance. <laughs> okay, Papa Lance. Sounds good. I like that. Well, Lance, you uh, obviously have had great success in the plaintiff's uh, world of litigation. And uh, I'll tell our listeners, I've been um, honored to work with you on a couple of car cases, car manufacturer defect cases, and uh, certainly learned a lot from working with you and enjoyed enjoyed those couple of cases. Um, but our listeners are, are mainly lay people. So I wanted you to try just take a few minutes and explain what we mean by products liability and specifically the, the type you specialize in crashworthiness or products liability invar- involving car manufacturers. Sure. Well, you know, products liability, essentially when you boil it down, it, it's just proving that a, a product is defective and that that defect caused someone's harm. And there are really two main areas in that. There's the manufacturing defects and the design defects. So for example, if somebody makes a product wrong and it fails, then they're responsible for that manufacturing defect. Uh, that's that's what happened uh, in part in the uh, in the Melton case, the cobalt case we can talk about. But it also was design defect in, in ways. And the design defect is simply, hey, the, the vehicles or the product, they're all made the same way and they have an inherent design defect that makes them unsafe. So those are the two main areas of product liability law that I deal with are the, are the design and manufacturing defects. And is there any particular uh, Georgia law that applies to those cases that that doesn't apply to, say, just a plain old car wreck case? Sure. Well, in particular for the design defect cases, uh, it, the, the, the law is unique because when you show when you have to prove a, a product is defective by design, you have to show that the there should have been a better design. In other words, was there an alternative feasible design that was available that the company chose not to use? And, and and what takes place there is judges and ultimately juries evaluate the evidence, and that is it's a risk benefit analysis. And that is, did the company, uh, if there was an alternative design, did the company risk more? than the benefit. So for example, if they decided we don't want to spend the extra $20 to make this product safer, uh, the jury ultimately has to decide, well, did you act reasonably? Should should you have spent the extra $20 to make the product safer? In other words, was the risk that this product was on the road uh, greater than the benefit that the public gets from that product? And it's, it's a little complicated, but at the end of the day, jurors are basically just asked, basically asked, was the risk worth the, the benefit? And if it was, then it's not defective. If it wasn't, if they should have incorporated the design. So for example, not every vehicle can, can be a Mercedes-Benz SUV with all the modern safety technology because the, the, and certain cars wouldn't be affordable. However, uh, there are certain basic safety features that should be on all vehicles. And so that's what the jury ultimately is asked to consider is did the company, and it comes down to basically a, a question of reasonableness, did the company act reasonable under the circumstances? And, and let me guess, a car manufacturer never admits it, it did something wrong. 
No, and most of the time <laughs> they'll say they're, you know, obviously their designs are, are reasonably safe and that what our experts are suggesting is unreasonable. That's that's the pretty standard uh, fight that goes on in, in the courtroom. So, um, Lance, one of the th- one of the other things that often seems to pop up in products liability cases, uh, warnings and, uh, you know, or failure to warn, you know, of a particular a particular hazard. Uh, and I know, for example, like on bucket trucks, which is something I've sort of dealt with, if they don't have the right labels to tell you not to step here or not to not to utilize it in a certain way. Uh, does that ever come into play with your uh, products liability cases against consumer automobiles where maybe a manufacturer actually knows about a defect and, and then doesn't, doesn't warn uh, in the form of doing a recall or something like that? Yeah, and what's interesting is in the warnings cases, is, as you know, Lester, you really don't have to prove the product's defective. And, and the best example is this. Y'all probably remember back in the early 90s when the airbags in minivans were killing children that were riding in the front seat. Those airbags weren't defective, but the parents of those children didn't know what the car companies knew. And the car companies knew in their testing, these airbags are too powerful for children to be in the front seat. And there were a number of fatalities where the federal government ultimately got involved in what happened, a warning. And that is they didn't change the airbag, but they put out, they they compelled the manufacturers to put out these graphic warnings, do not allow your children to ride in front seats. And before that happened, parents didn't know. Uh, and, and once that happened, as we all know now, now we're close to 30 years later, you're not supposed to put your child still now because of airbags. You're not supposed to put your child if they're of certain height and weight in the front seat. That's the classic warnings case because you can't fix the airbag. It's going to deploy in a way that is going to protect a lot of people, but it's going to hurt, hurt children. And so they were warned, ultimately warned too late, unfortunately, for many families, ultimately warned, keep your children in the back seat. And I'm going to guess that that rule of keep your kids in the back seat if they're in a car seat came about because a trial lawyer brought a lawsuit against a car manufacturer and was successful in bringing it. I always think that, you know, if your car is safe, thank a trial lawyer. You're you're exactly right, Robin. In fact, I've spoken often about this. If, If we go back to the Pinto case back in the 70s, which is sort of the first notorious product liability case, the fuel tank cases, it was a trial lawyer, a trial firm that discovered that defect. And if you go forward to the fuel tank cases involving pickup trucks in the 80s, it was trial lawyers who discovered that problem. Uh, The problem with airbags we just talked about, up until most recently, the uh, the Takata airbag uh, defects, those were uncovered by trial lawyers. And unfortunately, uh, you know, the, the government, although they have a regulatory and, and oversight of the manufacturers, oftentimes, and not oftentimes, almost always, they aren't able to uncover defects. It takes trial lawyers using the civil justice system and, frankly, courageous families who are willing to stand up to these automotive manufacturers and other manufacturers to make sure that justice gets done. And what's important about the civil justice system is that not only allows for an individual family to go into court and hold a company accountable, as we just talked about, it brings about societal change. And there are a lot of safety devices and vehicles because of what families and trial lawyers on behalf of families have done over the years. You know, uh, you mentioned family, uh, courageous families. We're going to talk about the Meltons in just a minute. But um, my guess is you've had many courageous families who you've represented who have lost a loved one. 
And I'm wondering about when that family first comes into your office, probably with the death of a loved one, um, and then they tell you their story. How do you know you might have a, a, a products liability case or specifically a defect in the automobile? What? How do you even know that? Oh, I've been doing this for almost 30 years now. And although I'm not an engineer and I'm not a medical doctor and I'm not a, a, a you know, police officer, investigator, you, you, you tend to initially, when you have the initial conversation, understand this is more than just what the police officer said in the rec report. There's, there, there may be more here to the story. And so oftentimes we'll have initial meetings with potential clients and we'll have to tell them, no, we just don't believe we can help them, unfortunately. And that, as you know, that those are hard discussions to have. But the point I always make in those discussions is the last thing you want to do is be you know, a lawyer telling you who thinks he can help and you get your hopes up. And then at the end of the day, they can help because it makes your suffering even worse. And, and, and so we have those conversations, but you know, oftentimes we also basically tell people, those families, we're not sure if we can help, but there's enough here to investigate. And then what we ordinarily do is investigate on behalf of the, uh, the client. And in this case, in, in all product liability cases, the first piece of evidence you look at is the product. And, and then you look at the circumstances surrounding the use of the product. And then, you know, get engineers and experts involved. And then you, you'll have the next meeting where you, where you either tell the clients, yes, we think we can help or no. Unfortunately, our investigation shows that for whatever reason, it's just not a, a case we can pursue. And that, so, invo in, that, that involves, uh, I guess, uh, obtaining the car, correct? And holding on to the car to have it inspected? Yes. So every time we get an inquiry, the first question we ask, and oftentimes, as you know, we get inquiries from fellow lawyers who, who don't have the expertise in a particular area. And we want to make sure that the, the vehicle or, or whatever product or investigation is secured. And we, we take immediate steps, not only to, you know, for the insurance company to say, well, yes, it's secure, but actually to, to get it to our evidence facility. So we really know it's secure. Um, and then, um, and it, those two, that, that's an investment that we make in, in every case that we investigate. And it's an, an investment that ultimately, if we don't pursue the case, we tell the clients, you know, you don't owe us anything back. We're just, we just want to make sure we preserve whatever we can, spend the time and the money to do that in order to determine whether or not they have a case. But that's, that's, that can be a very uh, expensive process. Uh, I know you're talking about sometimes buying a wrecked car but then, you know, as you, you noted, you know, you're not an engineer or a doctor. You have to have uh, people with some expertise maybe to look at that. And so uh, what's, uh, what, what, what's your conversion rate on that? How, how many cases do you look at versus how many you end up taking in the end? Well, yeah, again, and it's basically three separate categories. The first category is in, in the meeting and the initial review, uh, if, if we don't believe there's a case there, then we don't take the next step of securing the evidence and hiring the experts. But if we feel like there is, uh, ordinarily, I would say at least, in, so, so I can't really give you a percentage, but it's less than half of the cases that come in the door from a product standpoint where client, the potential clients come to us that we take the next step uh, for whatever reason, because uh, these cases are very difficult, time consuming, and obviously expensive. But once we make the decision to retain experts and, and secure the vehicle, 
I would say in excess of 50% of those cases we take, just because as I was telling Robin, we've got the experience internally here to do that initial review and, and you know, just believe something went wrong here. So for example, if there's a car wreck and three people walk away and one person who's belted is catastrophically injured or killed, um, those kinds of things that they, they raise your antenna, like, wait, some, it, something must have gone wrong with a safety feature or it may have gone wrong. And that's what causes us to take that next step. And more often than not, when we take that next step, we find that there is a defect or a problem with the vehicle that contributed to, to the harm. We're going to talk about the Melton case with the um, ignition switch defect. But before we get into that, Lance, can you tell us examples of the types of defects you've handled in, in car cases and cases before? Yeah, so we can, I guess, start from the top or the bottom to the top. We've my first product liability case I ever handled back in 1992 was a tire failure case where a tread separated on a on a vehicle. And you may, and this is another, uh, I guess, to pat the back, pat, give a pat on the back to trial lawyers. Uh, this was when those old SUVs like the Bronco 2s and the Suzuki Samurais were defectively unstable. And it was trial lawyers who got, um, ultimately got these companies to make more stable vehicles and ultimately safer SUVs. But that, that's an aside. So the tire cases, we've handled axle failure cases, uh, airbag cases, seatbelt cases. We have seat back cases now, which are, are probably some of the most common defects we see where there's a rear impact and the front seats fail and, and cause an injury, catastrophic injuries or deaths oftentimes. And then, they, and then all the way up to roof crush cases uh, where a roof is inadequately designed and crushes down and harms somebody. And Robin, in fact, you and I worked on a GM roof crush case a few years ago. And uh, so it's, yeah. And then we've handled, we just finished a, a crane case and we've got another crane case in the office now where cranes have failed and, and people have been hurt. Uh, so a, a number of, a variety of different types of cases. And you sort of have to become a, an expert on those defects yourself, even though you say you're just a trial lawyer, and I would never say just a trial lawyer, but you, you have to learn a lot of engineering and science yourself about each defect. Yeah, a lot, a lot of engineering and a lot of medicine and, and a lot of times, uh, you know, reconstruction type work, physics, understanding uh, speeds and velocities and changes in velocities and those sorts of things just over the years. And I was not a, a math or an engineering major in high school. If, I mean, in college, as you heard. And so I've had to learn on the job a lot of those uh, areas of expertise. Well, let, let's talk about the Melton case. I, when I introduced you, I, I left out the fact that you are also a published author. And the book that you wrote is called Cobalt Cover-Up, The Inside Story of a Deadly Conspiracy at the Largest Car Manufacturer in the World. And it involves the case of uh, Brooke Melton, who was killed in a Chevy Cobalt um, back in, I think, 2010. Uh, and she died on the day of her birthday. I remember that. Um, and tell us a little bit about that. The Meltons, you take us through it in your book, but just like a, a family looking for help and answers, uh, and they walk into your office, uh, Ken and Beth Melton walk into your office one day and say, we, we don't know what happened to our daughter. Yeah, what, what's, what was unusual about Ken and Beth Melton, uh, the, the, them coming into my office, they were actually referred to me 
by the insurance adjuster in the case. And just to, to, to set the scene, uh, Brooke had uh, inexplicably lost control of her cobalt, gone into the oncoming lane of travel and impacted another car, which caused her death. And the people who were in the right lane, of course, did, did, hadn't done anything wrong as well, they were injured. And so they were making a claim against Brooks Insurance uh, because at that time, no one knew about the defect in the vehicle. It just, the police officer had determined that Brooke was driving too fast for conditions and caused this crash. And so a lawyer for the two people in the other vehicle had approached the insurance company. And Ken was concerned about the estate and whether he and Beth could be held personally liable in addition to Brooks Insurance. And so they just had questions but Ken also had questions about what had happened because of what had happened a few days before where the vehicle had been serviced. Uh, Brooke thought everything was fine. And the next thing you know, she's a young woman, sober, belted, uh, a good driver. And how could this have happened? And so Ken, as, as in part as a grieving father, but also in part as someone who really suspected something went wrong. And you know, Ken and Beth came together, but Ken was the one who was very uh, upfront about wanting to get answers to, to certain questions. And that that sort that sort of initial meeting where we need answer questions, I, I'm take I take it that you you really had no idea what had caused this wreck. I mean, you had no clue yet. You just felt compelled from the mountains that usually. Well, and and it goes back to what I was talking about before. It was. It was, a, it was a case that was really, uh, when you looked at the police report, it was cut and dried as far as her losing control. But there were so many factors that made it unusual. That, that I, like I said, uh, you know, she's losing control for no explained reason. She's belted. She's sober. Uh, there doesn't seem to be any reason for that to have happened. And so uh, that this is one where we told Ken and Beth that we, I was pretty candid with them. I said, the police officer has determined this was 100% Brooks' fault. Um, there's nothing in the report that would indicate otherwise. But uh, I, we've got some experience and we, we, we feel like, I think this is a case we should investigate. And most critically in this case, we bought the vehicle because the vehicle ultimately ended up telling the whole story. And um, so we secured the vehicle and then just began our investigation. So how does it... And how, how does a so it seems to me there are at least two kinds of products liability cases, uh, more than that, sure. But, uh, you know, some involve uh, crash worthiness where maybe what happened with the vehicle didn't cause the crash, like you're talking about with the with, with Brooke Melton uh, here. You know, there was a defect that caused her to go into the other lane. And there are others where the crash is maybe caused by something else, but there's uh, there's a crashworthiness or safety factor uh, involved in the vehicle. Could you talk a little bit about the difference in those two types of cases? Yeah, and really, and the difference exists in, in the cobalt, uh, Lester. So you've got, you're right. So the, when the switch uh, would uh, turn too easily and cause the car to shut off, that would uh, cause a loss of control. So that's a, that's not a crashworthiness case. That's just a defect that causes the crash. And in this case, however, the, when, the, when the switch would go off, uh, the airbags wouldn't work. So there were a number of cobalt cases where somebody, the, the switch went off and then someone was involved in a collision where the airbag not working caused their death. And that's the crash rate in this case. That's, in other words, there's, that, that's saying, hey, even though the switch turned off and someone lost control, if your airbag would have worked, 
you would have walked away from this crash. But it wasn't crash worthy. Worthy, in other words, because your airbag didn't deploy, uh, you, you suffered harm that you shouldn't have suffered if that safety device had worked. And that, that's the distinction, really, that existed in this. You know, both uh, claims, essentially, or both theories of defect, were existed in in, in the cobalt. So the defect in the cobalt was this ignition switch that would uh, unexpectedly go into what's called the accessory position. Is that right? Yeah. So if you, if you think about it, nowadays, a lot of, there's a lot of push button ignition switches, but still there are a lot of cars that you have a keychain, and you, you turn the switch and it, when you turn it to on, an accessory is just when you're sitting listening to the radio and an off is it's off. And so when people would be driving down the road, they could hit a pothole. And if their keychain dangled enough, it would turn the key from run to accessory or run to off. Or they could bump it with their knee if they were changing the radio. And the GM engineers knew about this before the first cobalt was ever sold and didn't do anything about it. We ultimately discovered. So um, it was it was essentially just it, it, it was it was a simple as we show, it ultimately was shown a simple defect to fix. They just chose not to. And it was common. I mean, you know, people driving down the road, there were hundreds of complaints where people were calling GM saying, my car's shutting off. What are you going to do about it? And because it, it was shutting off literally for tens of thousands of vehicles that where uh, people would be driving in an ordinary manner and the keychain would turn, you know, cause, cause when it, keychain um, moving in some direction would cause the switch to turn. And ultimately, you discovered that, but but you had to climb Mount Everest to be able to discover that. Tell us a little bit about hiring your experts and how your expert witnesses helped discover the ignition switch and and ultimately the the kind of grand cover up done by GM on this switch. Well, you know, it, it's interesting because Ken uh, in one of our meetings, I can't remember it was an early meeting, I can't remember which one, brought a recall notice in that he had received. Uh, on the about the cobalt because his mail was being forwarded, Brooks's mail, Brooks' mail was being forwarded to him, and it was a power steering issue, and so it caused me to think, well, maybe there's some problem with the steering here, and so uh, I, I, I called around because I hadn't really had, I, I had not had a powering steering case before, and y'all know Kale Connolly, Kale suggested Charlie Miller, who's a mechanic out of Mississippi, uh, who ended up being the best expert I ever had, I and mean, he just a just a just a wonderful man. And um, Charlie came out and, you know, long story short, said that we, the vehicle download had been done. Uh, and if you all know, it's a black box. And we had that information from the black box. It showed how fast Brooke was going five seconds before the crash and, and zero and at the, at the moment of impact and provided a lot of information about braking. But it also had this unusual information where it said, at the moment of impact, the key was in the accessory position. And Charlie said, I really don't understand this. Um, what this, you know, what the significant, he thought he knew what the significance was, but he'd never seen it before. And so that's what, when, and as I said earlier, that told the whole story, frankly. And that is the key was in the accessory position when the crash occurred. And so we had to then determine why did this happen? And Charlie helped us with that uh, immensely and, and really, Found ultimately uh, back in this this car was developed in 19 excuse me 2004 first sold he found a technical service bulletin on a GM database 
because he was a mechanic, so he can get on the GM mechanics database, technical service bullet explain, explaining this problem and not recalling, not doing anything, but making this minor change to the key, which uh, did address the problem, but they kept selling cars with the old keys. So if you can imagine, they identified a problem in late 2004. They said, we've got this fixed for it. We just need to change a part in the key. And when people call in, we'll give them that fix, but all the new cars we're making, we're still gonna keep making them with a bad key. It, it was, the conduct was that egregious. Now we didn't find that out till later, but Charlie discovered this technical service bulletin. And so General Motors, we initially served initial discovery, you know, we filed the lawsuit, served a document request, and they basically gave us nothing. And, um, but based on what Charlie had given us, and, and you all know this in your experience, we knew there was more there. <laughs> you know, you said there's no way that there's not more there to this story. And the, the lawyer for the defendant, a lawyer for GM kept, tell, kept telling us, you've got all we have, you have all we have. So we filed our motion to compel and he called us up and said, well, we have a little bit more. And, but now you have all we have. And we said, no, we don't think we do. And so really what we focused on is when they gave us a lot of information that was helpful, we were focused on, yes, but there have to be other crashes involving this. I mean, this is, this is not an isolated event. And they kept telling us, this is the only crash out there like this. And uh, without going too long, there, there were really two critical points, two more critical points in discovery. We, we fought them, we were having a hearing on a motion to compel, and they finally produced a significant number of documents. And I asked Doreen Lundergan, the paralegal in our office, who's fantastic, I said, could you help review these documents in order to see what, what they say? And she came into my office and said, you won't believe what I found. And she found a 2004 internal report from the manager of the Cobalt, where they basically had evaluated fixing the problem with the key and had a lot of engineers investigating it and ultimately turn, turned, uh, turned down the proposal to fix it because it was not an acceptable business decision. In other words, it would cost too much money. And that really opened the floodgates in the case. And we ultimately went to Judge Tanksley, uh, Catherine Tanksley in Cobb County here, who ordered them to produce some additional documents. And uh, well, we can talk a little, little more about it, but that, that's yeah. sort of the brief overview of the chronology. I saw that ultimately Judge Tanksley ordered a production of eventually 4,123,346 pages of documents. That's that's almost unimaginable. Well, and most of those came after the case, uh, after the initial case was over, when the federal government got involved belatedly, unfortunately, and Congress was involved and Senate was involved and GM all of a sudden realized mm -hmm. we need to come clean or we're really going to be, we're already in a lot of hot water. And if we don't come clean, we're going to be even more hot water. Gotcha. Gotcha. So how, how did you know you weren't getting everything? Uh, I mean, you know, sometimes, you know, when you get a bunch of discovery from uh, from a defendant in a case, you can see where, uh, you know, there there's email chains or something where there's not an answer. You know, other times, you know, I guess I've sort of had a little uh, uh, sort of a country country feeling that there wasn't, you know, everything wasn't there, but not ever with anything this this large and with the amount of documents that that you and Robin are talking about here. So how did you know you weren't getting everything and how did you uh, how did you go about in your motion to compel pr proving what is essentially 
uh, something you don't have access to, that they've got this and, you know, we know they've got this. And so they need to turn it over. Right. Well, two, two points to that. One, one reason we knew we weren't getting everything was there were a, a couple of more technical service bulletins. So we have these technical service bulletins between 04 and 2010 relating to this issue of unintended uh, power off of these vehicles. And the question was, well, these technical uh, technical service bulletins didn't come out in a vacuum. I mean, there were there had to have been an analysis done and, and a decision made in order to send out the bulletin. So we knew there was more to it than that. And then there were also, uh, you know, there, there were other documents that they produced, which indicated to us there were more documents. And we, we didn't know this, Lester, but we had a strong suspicion. So all we said to, to GM was, withdraw your objections to our requests and tell us you've produced everything and there's nothing to fight about. And they refused. And so when we went to Judge Tanksley, we said, Your Honor, all we're asking, our, our requests were legitimate. Their objections are without merit. They refused to withdraw them. There's got to be a reason why. And then the GM lawyer was questioned. The, the transcript is fascinating with Judge Tanksley, GM lawyer. And she, she said, well, you know, do you have these documents? And his response was always, based on our database search, this is all we found. And she says, I'm not asking you, you know, you can include anything on your database search and hide all sorts of documents. I just want to know, does General Motors have these documents or have there been other lawsuits based on our database search? We and and she she grilled him at the hearing because what he was saying, it was so obvious. He had been told by GM, listen, these are the terms we put in our database search. If it doesn't come up with anything, we ain't got no documents. And she, she knew that that was not the, the right way to, that's not the way discovery is supposed to occur. It's kind of like if your client says, well, based on my search, my database search of my you know, computer, there are no responsive documents. Well, the question is, well, what's on your computer? <laughs> not what did you search? And, uh, and so that's how it came about. And Tanksley, Judge Tankley saw through that and issued the order she entered. entered. Would, would you have been able to win the um, case without that? Uh, we, 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 we had enough evidence at that point to prove the defect and to prove that the defect was a cause. We had other experts involved, including Mark Hood, who just did, uh, we can talk about Mark in a moment, but uh, the short answer is yes, but we, we didn't have the strong punitive damages claim we ultimately had when we discovered all that evidence. Let's talk about how you finally discovered you've discovered a defect in the ignition switch, but then ultimately you find out that GM knew about it and lied about it and covered it up by um, fixing it at some point, but using the same part number as the old switch so that if you looked at it, you wouldn't know. Yeah, that's that was some incredible detective work. Well, I'd like to take credit. I'll, I'll take credit for it to this extent. I hired the right expert. Uh, Charlie Miller, <laughs> Charlie Miller referred me to Mark Hood, who's a, was a professional engineer at Swain Engineering down in in Florida, and I'd never worked with Mark before. He's one, but I flew down there, and uh, before we flew down there, well, let me back up. We had decided that we were going to pull Brooke's switch out of her car, and Mark was going to test it to see 
how strong it was, how hard it was to move from run to accessory to off, because it has to have a certain amount of uh, force requirements to keep it from turning. And so Mark said, so I'm, I'm gonna buy a couple of switches and just evaluate them in order to, uh, to see uh, you know, kind of how they work and just, just wanted to get an understanding of the switch. And so he, he bought these switches and he put them in this test rig and he found that they were much harder to turn. In other words, they, they had an, enough force to keep the, the, the switch in run, even if the key jostled the switch. And so he told me that, and we met and we had a meeting with GM and its engineers, and we showed GM, your new switches are stronger than your old switches, even though they're supposed to be the same switch. And Brooks switch was way low. It, it, it was way inadequate, and we knew that. And so Mark, uh, he didn't stop there. He said, there's got to be a reason for this. And so he went, I went, flew home and he calls me up and I, I was out of town and he called, he said, and this is another, you're not going to believe it uh, statement like Doreen's was. He's not going to believe what they did. And I said, what? And he said, they changed the switch. And he found without getting into too much detail, he just found through taking apart the switch and then X-raying it and scanning it, that the pin in the switch was just more robust than the, the new switch, more robust than the old switch. So it wouldn't turn as easily. And it, and Brooke, if she had had that switch, would never have, um, this never would have happened to her. And ultimately we discovered that GMs changed this switch out in 2006 for the newer switch. The vehicles and the, the newer vehicles had the, the, the better switch. And here's Brooke's driving in 2010. She'd taken her car in that weekend to be fixed. GM had switches available. And they didn't put it in there. And so two days later, Brooke has this tragic accident, which obviously not only was preventable, but, but was knowingly covered up. The defect was knowingly covered up. And that's when, um, well, the, the, the lawyers for GM, we, I waited and, and just talk a little bit about, about a tactical decision. Mark called me about that. And we had already scheduled the depositions of GM's, excuse me, the deposition of GM's switch engineer, the guy who designed the switch. And I, and I, I put that, uh, in, but Mark's deposition was scheduled before that. I didn't want GM to know what we knew. And so we put Mark's deposition off and we put the switch in front of the GM engineer, both the new switch and the old switch. And it was one of those aha moments where he couldn't explain it and basically uh, perjured himself repeatedly in the deposition as far as what he knew and when they knew it. And, and that's, that's when GM realized we, we need to, to do something about this case. That deposition I hope, that, I hope that's the, not too much detail, but that's it's sort no, of- No, no, I, I was gonna say, I bet that deposition for the GM lawyers was like they're sitting there and you're asking questions about this new pin and the switch and it's stronger. And they're like, oh my God, that's gotta be one of those, he knows, he knows the gig up. He knows when you're in, you know, certain kind of questions you're asking, they've got to know. But yeah, well, they, they did know. And what's interesting is after the Nixon, excuse me, the federal government's investigation, they had to produce all of the communications between GM's lawyers, outside lawyers in this case, and in house lawyers. And one of the first emails that went after the deposition was from the lawyer who was sitting in the deposition to the, one of the chief in-house counsels saying, essentially, we've got a major problem. And I can't remember what the quote was, but it was essentially, we're in trouble and we've got to do something about it. I bet. I bet they used different language. Yeah. I was guessing. <laughs> they, they, they did. We, we did. We cleaned it up.
we, we, we have a family podcast here. So yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so ultimately that turned the case for your the Meltons. And all of a sudden, I think GM wants to resolve the case with you. Is that right? Yes. And uh, and Ken and Beth uh, initially did not want to, you know, I, well, they left it up to me. And and GM had been trying to settle the case for about a year and a half before they produced the initial batch of documents. Their lawyer called up and said, hey, you know, this is not a good case for you. Your clients at fault, you know, but we're willing to you know, do something to help the family. They're nice people. And the Ken and Beth basically said, Lance, we'll be ready to settle when you tell us we should settle or, or we will be ready to excuse me to discuss settlement when when you and and so finally um, we had what I believe gotten everything we, we could get out of them and we had a problem in the case not to get too into the weeds but we had a problem that the dealership had screwed up uh, the, the, that weekend they had not um, uh, they had not done some things they should have done and so there was a real issue of whether the dealership could be held responsible for what happened and uh, and so Ken and Beth, uh, you know, we, we sat down and mediated with GM initially and were able to resolve the case with them and keep the case alive against the dealership. Uh, in the meantime, I kept trying to determine what I could do to bring this to the attention of the public. Uh, and this is where the story gets even more interesting, in my opinion, because historically, NHTSA, National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, has not been favorable when lawyers have provided them with information regarding defects. And in this case, I was really concerned that if I went to NHTSA, that GM would bamboozle them and that this, this, this defect would not uh, be uncovered essentially. So I, what I was trying to do is determine who, I'm not a class action lawyer, but determine who we could hire as class action counsel to file a class action. And in the meantime, GM realized they had a problem and issued the recall. Uh, in in February, early February of two of night of two thousand and what, fourteen. You know, uh, Lance. Most most folks who uh, who run businesses, and we're you know even even lawyers, we run businesses, and you know from time to time you have a problem, and and uh, most I think small business owners at least say when you have a problem you go try and fix it. You know, you try to uh, make it good. You know, see see what you could do to resolve it. But uh, I, I think I'm correct in saying that recalls uh, are, uh, are a, a very small part of what large automakers want to do uh, with regard to uh, discovered defects. Is that correct? Yeah. And what's tragic, what's tragic in this case is we were able to, to res GM found out about this. Uh, it was it was undisputed because when we deposed this gentleman and showed that they changed they had fixed the switches, GM knew about that in April of 2013. They had a duty under the federal law, even and they, they knew about it much earlier than that. But just assuming that that we showed them there's a defect you, and you you need to deal with this. It. Is, this is after Brooks' dad. This is after this... Brooks' dad. Yeah, in, in the middle of our litigation. They delayed from April of 2013 to February of 2014, and there were a number of crashes in the interim where people died or were injured. And, and that's what's, I mean, there's a lot of outrageous facts in this case. That's that's at the top, one, close to the top of the list for me. And that is, you know, the litigation civil justice system worked. It, it, it uncovered this defect. I showed you in a deposition with your engineer, there's a defect that you have fixed in these newer cars. 
and you kick the can down the road for eight months and people die or are injured. And then, you know, in February, they send out this innocuous uh, recall notice, not explaining anything about what they knew or when they knew it. But, hey, we got this issue. We'll change out the switches. No big deal. And it wasn't until I had to send a letter to the federal government called the Timeliness Court to say, wait, they sent you this little one page letter about let me tell you the rest of the story, what they knew and when they knew it. And that's when they realized we got trouble. And so they expanded the recall because I said I told them they've only recalled about I can't remember what it was at the time, four or five hundred thousand cars, which is a lot, but it's not nearly what they needed to. And ultimately, they had to recall over 30 million. And again, it's not. And again, that was with the assistance of other people who are helping me navigate the, the, the NHTSA process and the federal government process. But it just shows time after time when they could do the right thing, even after they had done all these wrong things, they chose not to. And people continue to, be, to die and be severely injured in these crashes. You you ultimately did reach a settlement in the Melton case and then something happened and you decided let's undo the settlement because this is not right. Tell us about that. Uh, the, the reason was is after the recalls were enacted or the recalls were instigated, I was watching one of the hearings where it was either Mary Barra or one of the other GM witnesses, and I can't recall at the time, uh, brought up the fact that they had produced a document in 2006 showing that they had changed the switch and knew about the change. And um, all the way through the litigation, all, all we could show was you changed the switch, but they couldn't say, you know, they, they basically said, we don't have any information as to why this happened or how this happened. And there were, it was a couple of smoking gun documents that were produced that Judge Tanksley had ordered them to be produced. And uh, I went back to Ken and Beth and said, Ken, they committed a fraud on us. They didn't produce documents they should have produced. We settled the case with the understanding that they didn't have those documents. And, uh, and I said, I, you know, I'm recommending that we offer to give the money back and uh, refile the lawsuit and ask for other documents they haven't given us so we can prove to a jury that not only did they cause Brooks harm, but they committed fraud on Ken and Beth in the court in, in uh, not producing the documents, which ultimately resulted in a settlement that they wouldn't have taken had they known all those facts. And so we refiled the lawsuit. A GM hired all sorts of lawyers, uh, very qualified, high profile lawyers, but Judge Tanksley fortunately denied their motion to dismiss and said, you're going to trial. And then the case kind of unfortunately devolved from there because there was a, a federal case involving a number of lawyers who did not have the same interests that the Meltons had. And they sort of took over the litigation. I don't need to get into all the details about that. I, I talk about it in the book, but it was a very uh, unfortunate experience because we were no longer allowed to pursue the case that we wanted to pursue because the federal judge was um, uh, and, and the lawyers in the federal case decided they wanted to take over the case, which was uh, which was very unfortunate. And then I think ultimately you settled again uh, with GM. I'm going to yep. just guess for a significantly higher number <laughs> the second time. Yeah, it was. Well, we went to Ken and Beth. One of the things we did in the second lawsuit is I said, I want to know what the lawyers were saying to each other. Who knew what when? Normally, you're, as you know, you're not able to get at that. We didn't get at any of that. 
in the uh, in the deposition. But some of that was in the Belucas report, which we haven't talked about, but the federal report that was GM yeah. had asked for. And uh, and so we wanted to get all of that deemed uh, unprivileged, essentially. And before the motion to compel with Judge Tanksley, GM had to basically agree to that. And so we, we, we more or less had all the documents we thought we need. We had the whole story. Ken and Beth had done all they could do as far as getting the truth out. And they had been through a long five years at that point. And so GM came to them and, and, and we were able to resolve the case. You know, uh, I don't know how many times uh, a lawyer has had one of their cases become the um, subject of a congressional investigation. I have never had that, fortunately, with any of my cases, but the Melton case did, uh, and the GM ignition switch did become the subject of that. And um, you mentioned Mary Barra, who I guess was at the time the CEO of GM, and I think is currently the CEO. We're going to talk about another case in a minute. Um, but I wanted to read a, a little um, piece from your book about the Senate hearing on the, the GM ignition switch where Senator McCaskill uh, was questioning Barr. Uh, and you said you thought that Senator McCaskill could read your mind. She asked the CEO and quote, now here's a really important question. The document, which is completely relevant to any lawsuit that is filed against GM around these crashes would have been included in any document request from any lawyer representing a family. This document was not given to Mr. Cooper. This document was withheld from the lawyer representing the family of Brooke Melton. Melton. How do you justify withholding a key piece of documentary evidence in a litigation concerning a part that was changed without a part number change as it is spelled out in this document for anyone to read? How does that happen? So you're watching this, I guess, from home. I'm not sure if you were in Washington at the time, but you're watching it. And what were your thoughts? Well, that was what uh, I was talking about earlier. When we, uh, my, my thoughts were uh, you know, these documents weren't produced. And I really, Robin didn't know uh, about those documents until the hearings, uh, because we had obviously the government wasn't cooperating. They, they weren't interacting with us, Congress and, and, and NHTSA at that point, they were conducting their own investigations. And so uh, I remember I was sitting with Sonia uh, on the couch watching the hearings. And I, I, I believe it was uh, Senator McCaskill, but there were a couple of, uh, Senator Boxer also had some questions or comments and realizing, wait, they, they, they've, you know, they, <laughs> they, they've committed fraud essentially and not only against us but against judge tanksley and this in the system i mean you know, our system only works mm -hmm. if the rules are followed and fortunately we had a judge here that was going to force them or tried to force them but they still didn't follow and and that's that was one of the primary reasons for the second second lawsuit so uh we're talking about you know at the time you settled the case to begin with uh the, the first time the uh, part had been changed. The number had left the same. And uh, I, I just want to make sure I, I've got this correct. Uh, you know, it's the trial lawyer in me. You know, you want to ask the question twice so the jury hears it. I want to make sure our listeners hear it. GM's explanation, if I understand it correct, is 
oh, wow, gee, yeah, this is just a different, you know, yeah, this is a different part, but we, we don't know, you know, we don't know how this happened. Maybe it was the parts ferry that came in and designed this new, new part. Is that, is that correct? Well, it wasn't, and, and to, 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 to your point, Lester, it wasn't a parts ferry. Delphi was their supplier and Delphi was bankrupt. Uh, you remember the, all the bankruptcies back in the late 2000s. Right. So, and so their position was, we don't know, but Delphi was our supplier and, you know, we're not going to tell you they did it, but maybe, you know, maybe it was them, maybe it was somebody else. We, but it wasn't, you know, we have no idea how this happened. And of course, that's if, if you don't have the smoking gun, it's hard to refute. And particularly if you're trying to get punitive damages, they're going to come in and say, well, you know, we don't know. And of course, that's what made the, the evidence so damning was because it showed there was a GM document with GM engineers on it, that would show not only did they know, they authorized and approved it back in 2006, four years before Brooke died. In cover-ups like this, uh, and, and, and I ask this as, uh, you know, uh, all of us have been involved in different sort of leadership positions within the profession. And, you know, is it, is our clients or big corporations able to uh, pull this off or, or, or in your view, are there lawyers that are sort of have to be complicit in it to get a, to try to get away with something like this? Well, in, in this case, uh, the, the lawyers were, uh, if not complicit, had had knowledge and closed their eyes because because that, that's that was the whole point about, again, another point for refiling the lawsuit is what did the lawyers know and what we ultimately discovered based on the normally privileged documents that were produced. They were advising their clients years before. I mean, their client GM to settle these cases. Uh, you know, there'd be a 50 mile an hour crash and the airbag wouldn't work and the teenage girl would die. And the lawyer would say, you really need to settle this case. At some point, the question is, well, what's the lawyer's responsibility, particularly the in-house lawyer, to say, wait, this is a this is not just a one off. This is a problem. We need to do something about it. And if we don't, uh, uh, you know, what's going to happen is what like what happened in the melting case. So, uh, you know, I, I I I think more often than not, what probably happens is lawyers just turn to blind, turn a blind eye. It, when, they, when they have the evidence and they're, they're advocating for their clients, which is, which is reasonable and appropriate and necessary. But they're, they're, there's this line that no doubt is crossed at times between advocate and if not cover up, certainly uh, turning the other, you know, turning away from it. One thing I wanted to uh, have you talk a little bit about was you mentioned it earlier, the Volucas report. And as I understand it, it was um, Mr. Volucas was hired by GM basically to investigate the situation and seemed like a bit of a to whitewash it for GM, uh, especially going forward. Can you talk to us a little bit about the Volucas report and its significance? Sure. It, it was a whitewash. I mean, it, Mr. Volucas was hired. He worked for GM before and he's, he was hired to basically get to the bottom, get to the root of the problem. And so what he identified was what anybody could identify. He just happened to have the opportunity to, to interview engineers and other GM employees and, and have all the evidence at his disposal. But he basically said, hey, uh, this is really there's no nefarious intent here. It's just it, it's you know, it's just really negligent conduct on the part of this company. And, you know, there is this rogue engineer uh, that was involved with the change in the design. 
who was not a rogue engineer. People knew uh, about it, but that's that's you know that's what he was hired to do because GM at the time, when you think about it, I was interviewed by Neil Cavuto, and his question was, "When is GM going to go bankrupt?" I mean, they were it was a whirlwind for a few months there because of the the just the out and people knew what they had done at that point and they were angry and they were thinking GM's not. Particularly, this is not too far off the heels of the, of the people bailing GM out, the government bailing GM out a few years earlier. And so GM was sort of, quote, in a fight for its life at that point. So they got ahead of it and Lucas came out. And so the press bought it. The press basically said, gosh, look at all, all this dirty laundry that GM is airing. And they're really trying to reform and do the right thing. And I could read between it and say, no, what, they're, what he's trying to do is make sure, first of all, the executives are totally out of it. And so his point was no one at the top knew anything about this or even close to the top knew anything about this. It was all the minions, first of all. And it really wasn't intentional. It was just some bad conduct that, I mean, negligent conduct that, yeah, they need to fix. And they will, you know, they're going to put reforms in place to fix it. And uh, and it worked because the press, for the most part, uh, talked about the scathing Lucas report and how GM put itself under the microscope. but. It was all a press plan, frankly. And, and, and really, if you want to talk about the Buchanan case for a moment, that proves it was all a press plan. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, and the CEO in her congressional testimony kept referring to it like, oh, it's all fine now because we've had the Volucas report and uh, this will never happen again. Basically, uh-huh. she said, we've put measures into place that this will never happen again. But lo and behold, uh, at least what it looks like to me from what I've read of the Buchanan case, um, it has happened again, regardless of the speak up, whatever they call that, speak up speak program up at GM. Speak up, yeah, speak up for safety. Yeah, so back in 2014, speak up, yeah, speak up 2014, for 2014, shortly after all this happens, uh, Marie Buchanan is driving in Paulding County, Georgia, same county that Brooke Mountain was driving in. She loses control of her trailblazer and expectedly rolls over and is crushed uh, by uh, by her roof in her in her vehicle trailblazer. And we filed a lawsuit thinking it was a switch case, uh, got discovery showing that there's a defective sensor in the steering wheel of the vehicle, which causes the safety device not to work, stability control not to work. And that's the reason why she lost control. And. Ironically, one of the lawyers working on the case for GM, an in-house lawyer, sent this case to the Speak Up for Safety program. The program Mary Barra uh, instituted in 2014, basically saying this is an issue. This crash happened and they, they undertook an investigation and the investigation showed they had tens of thousands of sensor failures in these vehicles. Uh, it's hard to determine how many crashes because y- y- the black box doesn't talk about this, but they've had they have them. They have tens of thousands of these and uh, they conduct a full blown investigation. The, the sensing that if, if the sensor fails, a stability control safety device will not work on the vehicle, which they promote as an important safety device. And uh, and so they conduct an investigation after the Buchanan lawsuits filed and they decide not to do anything about it. So there are there are tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of GM SUVs on the road today built in this time frame that have these defective sensors. 
And we simply uh, sent a request to the local judge, I mean, sent a request to GM. We wanted to pose Ms. Barra about this because she's the one that instituted this program. She promised <laughs> that there's not going to be another fatality under these circumstances. And then she submitted an affidavit saying, I don't know, I don't want to be deposed because I know nothing about this. And, and our point at the hearing was that should be exhibit A to why she should be deposed. Because <laughs> she said this was not going to ever, this was never going to happen again. And the trial judge saw it for what it is. And that is, well, sure, she's a witness. I mean, she created the program. They conducted an investigation under the program. And they didn't do anything about it. And of course, uh, he granted the, the, our motion to depose Ms. Barra and went to the Court of Appeals. They affirmed the decision recently. And it's ironic. If you look at the, uh, they've applied for what, you know, you all know is certiorari. And that is just, they're asking the Supreme Court to look at this. And um, it's amazing the number of business interests. I think I filed, we filed a brief on our behalf and I think there are 10 or 12 business interests from the U.S. Chamber of Commerce to the Georgia Chamber of Commerce and every group in between that are that are fighting the fact that, that Mary Barra ought to be deposed because a young lady died in, in Paulding County, Georgia. No one wants their CEO deposed, but um, specific, particularly Mary Barra, I would guess, I'm just thinking if I were in her shoes, I wouldn't want to sit across the table from Lance Cooper. That would, that's just me. Maybe she's different, but I know she's not going to um, enjoy that moment. Um, and I pulled the opinion. That opinion came from the Georgia Court of Appeals on May 6, 2021, fairly recent opinion. But but they they quote the trial judge who's who basically quotes Miss Barra's own congressional testimony, kind of put it right back in her face. Um, and it says the court pointed to Barra's public statements during recent litigation, which I'm assuming is Melton, uh, regarding different alleged vehicle defect and other statements Barra made concerning GM safety and efforts to investigate and eliminate safety issues, um, which is the, the whole point. She said it would never happen. We've got these programs in place. And lo and behold, now there's this defect that apparently isn't about 770,000 GM vehicles. Yes. Yes. Um, so so is that deposition scheduled yet? No, the Supreme Court has to rule <laughs> on the petition. And then we're hopeful, you know, I mean, obviously they've they're gonna make their decision, but we're hopeful that'll happen in the near future. Yeah. Which which by the way, it bears uh pointing out that uh uh you know the US Supreme Court uh, only hears about 80 uh 80 cases, I think, in a year, and uh very few cases that involve an attempt to stop a deposition go above the trial court level. I mean, you may have some scuffling in the trial court about that, but the idea that it's uh, already up asking the Supreme Court to take it with a friend of the court, so-called amicus curiae briefs uh, by the Chamber of Commerce and everybody else shows that uh, uh, it's getting a little bit different uh, uh, resistance than what you normally get in uh, an automobile accident case. Fair to say, Lance? That's fair to say. <laughs> um, Lance, at one point when you're wrapping up your book, your last chapter is called A Happy Ending. And you, and you say this, the civil justice system is accountable in ways that government oversight never will. Um, my question is, do you think the civil justice system um, 
righted a wrong here, uh, uncovered the defect, you used the civil justice system. Did it work for, for the Meltons? Well, it, it, it didn't right a wrong because, you know, Brooke's gone. Um, it did the best it could to right a wrong. It did the best it could. And, uh, and it worked as it should. Um, it worked, it, 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 I've made this point before, uh, this, is, this is the way that it didn't work. Uh, in 2017, two teenage girls in Wisconsin died as a result of this defect. 2007, excuse me, uh, three years before Brooks crashed, two teenage girls in Wisconsin died as a result of the defect with these airbags. The airbags didn't deploy in a crash. And those families went to good lawyers in Wisconsin and they were told, we can't pursue it because there are wrongful death caps in Wisconsin and your teenage children, it, it wouldn't make any sense financially to pursue the case because we would spend more than we could recover for the wrongful death of your daughters. That's where the civil justice system doesn't work is when laws are put into place to prevent people from going to court and holding wrongdoers accountable. So uh, I've made that point often, and that is we need to be vigilant here in Georgia and everywhere, but particularly here in Georgia as Georgia trial lawyers to preserve access to justice, not only for individuals, but for businesses, for everyone, so that everybody has an opportunity to go to court and, and right a wrong. Lance, uh, you often talk about your faith. I know you uh, about it quite a bit, and you are very upfront and open about it. And you mentioned it numerous times in the, the Cobalt cover-up book. Um, tell how does your faith play a role in how you practice law? Well, it's, it's really integral. Uh, and, and I think it's because of the kind of law we practice. And that is, we, we involve, have cases where we help people when they're in their worst circumstances. You know, when, when they're being oppressed somehow or, or they've been harmed uh, in a wrong manner. And um, so, so that in and of itself, the type of law that we practice to me, it, I, I've, I've been called to that, I, I think, in large part, because that's where God's put my heart. Um, it's a business, and there's no doubt about it, uh, that, that, you know, uh, we, we have to keep the doors open here. But it's also a calling. And I think it is for, for all of us, whether we have, frankly, whether we have a faith or not, but it just, it, it, it draws me in because of my faith. And the example is this. I have no doubt that God providentially brought Ken and Beth Melton into my office that day. You know, he did. And, uh, and, and that was a gift to me. What happened to Brooke was we'd like to turn the clock back. But at that point, that was a gift because it, it sent me on this journey, but to, a journey with them and then meeting all of these other people I met along the way. And I've had my 15 minutes of fame, as Andy Warhol said. I mean, this was I'm never going to have probably another Melton case in my life. But I'm grateful for it. And I'm grateful to God, the relationships I've built. And I, I was really grateful to get to know Ken and Beth and, and share because we, we share a common faith. And so I realized and, and in every case, I don't, you know, when a client comes in the door, I don't wear, you know, my Lord and Savior on my sleeve. But I try to act in a way that honors him. And, and we all do here in the office. And as we know, there are so many biblical admonitions about what we do and uh, in, in helping the poor and the oppressed and the orphans and widows. And, and I know the kind of practice y'all have, we're blessed to do that every day, even though it, it comes out of tragedy. 
as, as it says in Ecclesiastes, I think it's, I can't remember what verse, but who can make crooked, uh, excuse me, who can make straight what God has made crooked? In other words, this life is very crooked. And, but at the same time, we're called to, to help make it straight in some way. I hope that answers your question. I think that's a very, very well it said. That's a beautiful answer. Yes. And I and I I, I totally agree about the calling. You know, if you look at uh, some uh, common law countries like Britain, uh, they don't talk about being admitted to the bar like you have a ticket to come in, but you're called to the bar. And I like I like that expression uh, much more than than admitted. Yeah. Lance, our, our last question that we ask every guest and I ask you to be thinking about it is how do you define justice? But I'm going to talk about it in the context of the law, and and really, there's two separate concepts of justice that I would like to define. The first is restorative justice, and that is, uh, I would define it as making things right for someone who is harmed by another. Uh, And what we do, our job is to do what we can to make things right for someone who's harmed by another. And that's the restorative, that's the compensatory aspect of justice. And as, as you know, as lawyers, that's really all we can do oftentimes. But then there's also uh, you know, retributive justice, and this deals more in criminal cases, but it also is in like the GM case, the punitive damages case. And I think it's the reasonable and appropriate punishment of wrongdoing. In other words, uh, retributive justice in a case such as uh, Melton, there should have been reasonable and appropriate punishment of the wrongdoing. The question is, was there reasonable, appropriate punishment? I don't believe so, but there should have been uh, given the magnitude of the harm. I think um, I was going to say that GM, I think, ultimately paid $2.5 billion in fines and settlements for the ignition switch defect. Uh, and uh, there was a class action settlement of $600 million for 124 deaths and various other injuries. Um, and that's still not enough. That's Yeah, it's ongoing. They're still paying. Uh, there, there are still existing claims out there involving involving these vehicles. But the reality is, is unlike individuals uh, who, if, if you or I uh, are DUI and we harm somebody, we're likely going to jail for a long time. Uh, these large corporations, and I'm, I'm as, as I say in my book, I, I'm as big a promoter of capitalism as anybody in this. I mean, I believe in the free market system, but the free market system also has to, it's critical, it has a robust civil justice system. And, uh, and, you know, they, they got away with it to a large extent because here they are almost, you know, what are we, eight years later, seven years later. And uh, this is in the rear view mirror for them for the most part. Their, their, their stock is up. I, be, I believe Mary Barr is doing fine. Uh, the executives are all, they've either still there or they've taken their golden parachute. And Ken and Beth Meltner without their daughter. And so it's... Uh, we, we did what we could, but as we also know from, from the scripture, uh, you know, we're, we're only going to achieve perfection when we get, get to heaven. You know, here, here we, we deal with the messiness of life the best way we can, and, and not to be too philosophical, but thankfully, you know, we're all able to do it in a way that, that we can make a difference. Well, thank you, Lance. I think that's all, all we have for you today. It's been a fascinating 
conversation at, at the point that I learned about the ignition switch and realized what they had done and covered it up. I, I got cold chills just thinking about that moment. Um, but thank you for being a champion of justice um, and for this, the civil justice system. Uh, a lot of people say, you know, our, our American civil justice system is the worst one in the world. Um, but or what do they say? It's, Except for all others. It's the Except worst for one in the world. Others. It's better than anyone else. <laughs> Any other one. Uh, so You're right. You're right. Your time. Yeah, we appreciate your time, Thank Lance, you, Lance. And uh, thanks for being a guest. And uh, we'll be following you. All right. Thank you all. Have a good afternoon. You too. Thank you. Lester, do you have any interesting news we can share with our listeners that has happened in the next last couple of weeks? I absolutely do. Uh, uh, I'm going to uh, tell our listeners about a story that came out on July 19th of this year. Uh, it, it's on uh, CBS News, but there's also other uh, articles about it in the Wall Street Journal and New York Times, other places. But jury orders Walmart to pay $125 million after it fired worker with Down syndrome. And uh, Walmart lost this federal lawsuit in Wisconsin uh, when a jury sided with its sales associate who had Down syndrome and fired, uh, uh, fired her because of that disability, the jury found. Marlo Spaeth had worked for Walmart for about 16 years before she was fired from the store in 2015 due to excessive absenteeism. Uh, according to the lawsuit, which was brought by the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, which, as you know, Robin, that rarely rarely happens. Most discrimination cases are not taken up by them. Uh, uh, Space schedule changed after Walmart implemented a new computerized system in 2014, which created significant difficulty for her. And uh, the, the, the thing that I want to point out for our listeners is this. The jury and federal court in Green Bay awarded Spaeth more than $125 million in punitive damages. The jury also awarded Spaeth $150,000 in compensatory damages. The substantial jury verdict sends, in this case, sends a strong message to employers that disability discrimination is unacceptable in our nation's workplaces, EEOC Chair Charlotte Burroughs said in a statement. But they've buried the lead here because it really doesn't send a strong message because in the very next paragraph, the story says Walmart is likely to pay much less than the substantial verdict the jury awarded. A company spokesman told Associated Press the damages will be reduced to the maximum allowed. And this is because of caps uh, on this type of litigation, just like uh, our guest today, Lance Cooper, was talking about how they do injustice and other forms of litigation. And so the verdict is likely to be reduced to $300,000, from $125 million to $300,000. Now, I want to point out that, because we probably have a lot of listeners that say, well, that, well I think that was a little excessive. You know, I, I wouldn't have given that if I'd been on the jury. And, of course, the judge in this case, as we all know, because of the federal rules of civil procedure, has the right to, uh, to, to look at a remittiture, uh, which is a reduction of the verdict or whatnot. But what has made this a maximum, re reduced to the maximum allowed is $300,000. So what the federal government has done and what state governments try to do routinely 
and, and a lot of other states, we've been successful in avoiding those uh, largely here in Georgia, is to put a one-size-fits-all cap in to say that regardless of what the circumstances, regardless of how egregious it is, regardless of what the jurors who have given up a huge portion of their lives and, and livelihood in some instances to sit and hear the facts, we're going to say that it's never going to be worth more than some amount that uh, basically uh, legislators, either state or federal, who've sort of been wined and dined by business interests, uh, deem, it, uh, deem it to be worth. So that's mine for today. Very good. Uh, mine is actually a, a, involves a criminal case. But uh, we've talked about it before because we had Joshua Sharp uh, as a guest on our podcast, journalist with the AJC, and he's uh, involved in this case. And I'm talking about the Dennis Perry case, uh, where Dennis Perry uh, was wrongfully convicted of two murders of uh, the Swains. But the murders were in 1985, and he was convicted of them uh, it was a cold case and he had, he was convicted of them in 2003 has served 20 years and Joshua Sharp got involved uh, looking at the case at, at the 20 year mark of, of Mr. Perry's incarceration and helped helped find the fact that the DNA of a piece of hair in a pair of glasses left at the scene by the culprit did not match Mr. Perry. And so um, the Georgia Innocence Project got involved and started working to exonerate Mr. Perry, and they got King and Spalding, a very large law firm uh, here in Atlanta, to help them. King and Spalding donated over over a thousand hours of their time uh, to do this. They were successful months ago getting a new trial ordered for Mr. Perry, and then on Monday of this week, uh, the new DA down there. Uh, basically say we are not going to retry Mr. Perry and, and he is exonerated and the judge exonerated him said you're free to go. So hats off to the hard, hard work by the Georgia Innocence Project. And I'll give a shout out to my daughter, Alex Clark, who happen, happens to be interning there this summer uh, before her third year of law school. And she got to go to Brunswick and celebrate with Mr. Perry and Mr. Perry's family. Uh, and it was a pretty remarkable, uh, pretty remarkable, remarkable day. Um, and, but, and I would I, I would say too that that story you know that's the one where the who they suspect is the true culprit said he had an alibi so the police called the place he was working and the culprit himself answered the phone and said he was someone else but oh yeah he was here that night didn't commit it and uh, that I thought that was one of our our best uh, podcasts that we had. And so folks that are listening to this, uh, particularly with this news, if you haven't listened to the one with Josh Sharp, I hope you'll go back and and uh, listen to it or, or listen to it again if you have before, because it is absolutely a, a fascinating story. And and you can find Joshua Sharp's, um, I don't know if it's a podcast or, or it's, I, I guess you might call it a podcast, but it's on the AJC.com called An Imperfect Alibi. Uh, and it exposes that in the pretty crappy work by the police officers down there, the detectives investigating. And the sad thing is Mr. Perry now is exonerated and never has to face this again, but he was wrongfully convicted. He lost 20 years of his life. And the Swain family now loses the fact that somebody who, who actually killed their loved ones is probably not going to be tried for it or serve time for it. So 
sad situation, but it just shows that our, our criminal justice system has some flaws. Um, it obviously has flaws, and there are obviously people incarcerated who were are not guilty of the crime they have been convicted of. But good ending for Mr. Perry and for the Georgia Innocence Project. And that's all I got, Lester. That's all I've got uh, as well, Robin. Uh, okay. Great, great, great episode today with Lance. Great show. Could listen to Lance all day. Uh, and until the next time, we'll, we'll see, you, see in you in court. court. Thank you for listening to See You in Court, brought to you by the Georgia Civil Justice Foundation and the Georgia Institute of Technology. Please subscribe to this podcast and consider writing a review. You may find related documents to this week's episode on our website, cuincourt.podbean.com. Please send any questions, suggestions, or ideas to cuincourtpodcast at gmail.com. The producer of this podcast is Raz Misher. We thank Noreen Hassan, Associate Professor and Director of Outreach and Community Engagement of the Georgia Institute of Technology School of Literature, Media, and Communication, and the Georgia Tech students who help bring you this podcast. I'm Fred Smith, Executive Director of the Georgia Civil Justice Foundation. You may learn more about the foundation at fairplay.org. On behalf of Robin Fraser clark and Lester Tate, until our next episode, we'll see you in court.